The reading is taken from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 25. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him said, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Jesus, sorry, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. 
Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is, it, is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this, his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Nelly. Uh, this is the last of our uh, five sermons on the Living Faith Lent course, and this evening's one is on leadership, on developing leadership in a local church, developing leaders in the context of our national church. And for a couple of reasons, I'm going to um, have a little sort of a sideways look at this passage and a sideways look at the um, subject, partly because I'm conscious that if you're doing the Living Faith course in your house groups, almost certainly you've done this study by now. The quirk of the calendar is such that your house group almost certainly will have got to uh, number five uh, before we got to Easter Day. Uh, so you probably know as much about this passage, if not more, uh, than I do, and have already shared your stories about it. And secondly, uh, a bit like Michael Green, uh, I feel that I've been preaching more or less non-stop for the last uh, few days, uh, and um, so I thought a little bit more personal uh, reflection on uh, this subject and on this passage wouldn't be appropriate. We're going away for a few days too, so I'm slightly sort of demob happy as well. So, uh, so forgive me for being a little bit more personal than usual. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you call many of us, uh, many of us, in all sorts of ways into leadership in your church and in the community. Uh, and we pray for ourselves as a church that we might uh, effectively work together in leadership, and that we might work together in leadership in our city, uh, working with others in other churches as well. And we pray now that as we look at this commissioning of Peter to lead your church, that you would teach us something on these subjects for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, a few weeks ago, we went to a dinner party <coughs> away from Oxford. By coincidence, I think, a fellow guest at this dinner party was one of those who had been involved with my appointment as vicar here at St. Andrews. He's not involved with St. Andrews, so I'm on safe territory. I know he's not here. And I had not had a conversation with this person uh, since the somewhat protracted and painful process that the church went through in 2001-2002 uh, uh, as it sought a new leader for the church. Eventually, after this protracted period, we reached a kind of resurrection day, and I was appointed. Ho-ho. Uh, that, that, uh, that was my story on it. Anyway, um, it, would be, uh, it would be fair to say, I think, that, um, and some of you were very involved in it, that the leadership of the church here was a little divided over the choice of a successor to my worthy predecessor, Bob Key. Now, this is meant to be a sermon on developing what is called in the Living Faith series, collaborative leadership in the church, collaborative leadership. I have to say, off the record, although this, of course, will be forever on the website, and I suppose the bishop, the bishop might listen to it, but I have to think that collaborative and leadership are actually contradictory terms, but we won't go into that in detail, because I'm doing my best to be a good Episcopal boy, but uh, you'll see what I mean. Um, 
but the appointment is an, is an opportunity for the church to collaborate. Uh, it didn't go, as I say, it didn't go all that well. The first four candidates were all rejected after interview, frankly to my surprise. Now, I had not put my hat in the ring at this point, and all four seemed marvelous to me. Perhaps I should explain, for those of you who weren't part of St. Andrews, that I had already joined the staff as a sort of honorary curate, but I was working full-time for Christians in Sport at the time. So after a somewhat painful hiatus that I won't go into, another four candidates were interviewed, and one of which was me, and rather to my surprise, uh, I was selected. Now at this dinner party, with one of those involved in this process from outside the church, this fellow guest, who as I say, I had not seen since the interviews, looked at me when we discovered that we were both at the same dinner party, he looked at me with a mixture of pity. He sort of said, it can't be easy to, to lead a church like that, can it? You know, what a lot, sort of. That's what looked on his face. And I thought I detected a slight look of disdain on his face as well. I rather suspect that I was not his preferred candidate. So I said, jokingly, over dinner, I said to him, would you like me to resign so that you could go through the appointment process again. And at this point, he nearly choked on his potatoes. Now, it is true uh, that I find it challenging and at times tough to lead St. Andrews, and that is partly because so many in the church are themselves leaders. So many here are used to making decisions and taking a lead in their work or in their family or in their leisure in the community, in society, in the university, of course, uh, particularly. But funnily enough, in the eight years since that protracted and painful process, I have never thought that I should be doing something else or that I was not in God's will. No doubt that has occurred to others, but it hasn't occurred to me. Generally speaking, I would say that it is a delight to lead a church which not only believes in cooperative which I think is a better word than collaborative leadership, but uh, on the whole, on the whole is pretty good at doing it. We're far from perfect, of course, and someone said, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. But we, but we do pretty well in working together here, sometimes through very difficult issues. Now, in John 21, this wonderful resurrection story, and I haven't forgotten that I'm preaching on the Bible, in John 21, we see the process by which Jesus selected and commissioned his first church leader. And I have to say, rather like uh, the process of appointing vicars, it wasn't always a promising process. On Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, the one whom Jesus had selected to be the leader of his church didn't look a promising candidate at all. He denied Jesus three times, said that he didn't even know who he was. Now, you will not be surprised to know that this fishy resurrection appearance is one of my favorite Bible stories, and I've preached on it many times. And I still marvel at the 153 big fish that were dragged ashore. Uh, and as I walk the dogs by the, my dog by the Thames uh, every morning, one of the things I love to ask the fishermen is, um, you know, caught anything? And it makes them so cross, doesn't it? It makes them so cross. 
and they rarely have caught anything in the Thames, and they scowl back at me. It's good sport. But on that day, on Lake Galilee, they caught 153 big fish, 153 big fish. So Peter may not have looked a strong candidate for catching men on Maundy Thursday. Come a few weeks later after the resurrection, he at least is getting better, especially when he does what Jesus says, at catching fish. So many fish that he counted them, 153. I assume, I mean, people preach all sorts of sermons on the significance of these numbers. I think, as a fisherman, he was so thrilled to catch so many, he just counted them. He wanted to know how many he'd got, 153. Now, I want you to think of the process by which Peter is selected for leadership in a three-fold process. The first thing that is done in the process for Jesus in selecting is, of course, that Peter is given this challenge. He's given a challenge. It's the fishing trip. It's a challenge to Peter from Jesus. And let me give you just three headings, which actually, if you were at the eight o'clock communion this morning, you would have heard me uh, preach this sermon. Just let me give you the three headings. If you ever have to do an Easter talk, and many of you will be or are church leaders already, and you may suddenly be required, especially if you go on a mission with Michael Green, uh, you will suddenly be asked to preach in Marks and Spencers or something like that. So you might want to have a sermon up your sleeve. Here is an example of collaborative leadership, if such a thing exists. I'm trying to equip you to preach a sermon if needed. These are the three headings. If you remember these three, John 21, you can preach on the resurrection at the drop of a hat. Remember this. The three headings are these, the presence of Jesus demonstrated, the power of Jesus displayed, and the priority of Jesus established. Very easy to remember, three Ps. I hope with those three headings, any, many of you could preach a sermon, a good sermon, I hope. Now, the res res let's just look at them very quickly. The resurrected Jesus is really here. He's really here. He is with them. They can hardly believe it. He is both the same and he is different. He eats with them and speaks with them. It's very interesting, and I commented this in my sermon at 8 o'clock this morning, that when Peter leads Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 to Christ, one of the things that he says about the resurrection is that Jesus ate with them, broke bread and ate with them, and they talked with him. We were eyewitnesses of these things. It must have been, for, for Peter at least, one of those experiences must have been this one on the beach. And it's interesting that when Luke writes about that in Acts 10, he has that level of detail, seems to add powerfully to the historicity of the incident for me. So Jesus is really present. He's really there. The resurrection really has happened. This is not some spiritual experience uh, that the uh, apostles have somehow uh, put flesh onto by inventing this story. Here is the, the, the real presence of the resurrected Christ. And of course, his power is displayed not only in the resurrection appearance itself, but of course in the miraculous catch of fish. Furthermore, he had already managed to catch some fish himself and bake some bread, and so he had the barbecue going on the beach even before they got there. And then as the story continues, the priority of a relationship with Jesus is established in the threefold question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
Now, you could unpack each of those points. You could illustrate them from your own experience of walking with the risen Jesus, and you could apply them to your listeners. You could preach a sermon. You could ask, have you plunged into Christian discipleship like Peter? Or are you still standing shivering on the boat of half-heartedness? Have you discovered His power as you have obeyed His instructions, as the disciples did here and caught 153 fish? Are you still fishing in your own strength, thinking you know best where to cast your net? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life, recognizing that everything else in your life flows from that central relationship? Peter plunging into the, into the lake, swimming to the shore, is recognizing and putting Jesus first in his life. I want to be where Jesus is, is what he's saying. Is that true for you? Now, many of you could preach it much more eloquently than me, and I'm sure many of you will in the years to come. It seems to me that Peter passes this challenge in this part of the appointment process. I wonder what came into his mind as he saw the great net heaving with fish and heard Jesus calling him from the beach. Did he in that moment remember the first challenge that Jesus ever gave him? Do you remember what it was? Peter, a fisherman, leave your nets and I will make you a fisher of men. Did it flash into his mind then that, that the terrible failure of the denial and the agony of watching the crucifixion, which he had begun to understand was the necessary sacrifice, he had begun in the resurrection stories as Jesus explained the Scriptures to the disciples, explained the necessity of the Messiah's suffering, all these things that happened during previous resurrection appearances. Did he begin to see that he was being prepared for a great task that lay ahead, that the three years with Jesus before the cross and resurrection was training, was theological college, and then the experience of, of the cross, the, con the true conversion experience, the filling of the Spirit that follows his encounter with the risen Jesus, preparing him, equipping him, training him for a great leadership role in the church. Anyway, whatever he thought as that, as he saw Jesus on the shore, he had the courage and the faith to plunge in, and it pleased Jesus that he did. Here he could see, here was his man for the job. Here was the one who he could put in charge of the church. But he had one, uh, he had the second stage of the process to do. He had the interview still to go through, the challenge he had passed. Could he get through the interview? Do you know, I do not ever recall being asked this question when I was inter interviewed for my selection for the Church of England ministry. I was asked questions like, um, how much experience of the breadth of the Church of England have you had? Well, fortunately, I had had an enormous experience of the Church of England. Do you think that you will be able to cope with the academic study? Well, that was tricky if you wanted to play cricket six days a week, but I managed to get through on that one. Had you been involved in the leadership in, leadership in your local church? Now, that was a much better question than the others. But nobody asked, do you love Jesus? Nobody ever asked me that. I was never asked, do you love Jesus? You see, Jesus knew, in Peter's case, the answer to all the other questions that he could have put to Peter. He had been with him in collaborative leadership situations for three years. 
They had been walking together. They had been ministering together. He knew that he would, um, he knew his great strengths. He knew what he would be good at. And he was also only too well aware of Peter's weaknesses, which had been so starkly revealed uh, as Jesus was arrested and tried. So Jesus knew that he would need people like John, for instance, who features in this story as well. And later, of course, Paul, great academic mind. Peter could bring much, but he couldn't bring the whole thing. He needed the spirituality of, uh, of John. He needed the academic genius and the evangelistic skill of Paul and many others, of course, as well, to collaborate with him, with Peter, in the early church if the work was going to be done. The question was, the real question was, did this great potential leader who had failed so dismally but now had met the risen Lord and had plunged into the water and was expressing his enthusiasm for Jesus, did he love Jesus enough to live and die for him if necessary? That was the question. Do you love me more than these? Do you truly love me? Do you really, really love me, Peter? And Peter passed the interview. He gets through the interview. He was the man for the job. Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. He was the man for the job, but he would not be able to do it alone. He would need others. And then there's the appointment itself. So we've had the challenge, the interview, and the appointment. Jesus makes Peter the official leader, the pastor of the church, the one in charge, because Jesus, of course, is ascending and returning to heaven. The words he uses are very powerful in commissioning Jesus. In verse 19, he says, follow me, follow me. You see, he's already shared the job description. Peter's got the job description quite clear. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. You've got to be a shepherd to all these new believers. They are like sheep, and they need to follow the good shepherd, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter had heard Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. So he knew that Peter's job as a pastor is to feed the sheep, nurture the sheep, grow the sheep, encourage them. That's the job description. And it's spelt out three times because Peter's a bit thick because he's a fisherman and he needs to be told it clearly. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. But this great leader must be a follower if he is going to be a feeder of the sheep. The model that, of leadership that Jesus gives is a model of servant shared leadership. But the leader must lead. And that is true in the church and often in the community. If we're called to lead, lead we must. Sometimes it will be lonely and sometimes we will get it wrong. But lead we must. Peter is commissioned for leadership. Now the Living Faith booklet which some of you have been looking at in the house groups, encourages people to share good and bad experiences of leadership in a team, of being in a team where there's a leader. And I expect some of you have done this in your house groups, and I hope that you've had quite a laugh uh, as you've done so. So I wanted to close this Easter day with a couple of my experiences, one a happy one and one a less than happy one. The first is a happy 
experience of a team. I was part of a mission team, the kind of mission team that Michael was describing earlier, from Wycliffe Hall, and we went on a mission uh, to Macclesfield uh, for a town-wide outreach. Anybody from Macclesfield here? No, you're not far from Macclesfield, are you, Pete? Right, maybe you were there as a young lad. I was billeted uh, with a delightful family. Uh, the daughter of the house, uh, the family that I was billeted with, is now married to the principal of Wycliffe Hall, no less, Caroline. Uh, and she's part of our church. That's a complete coincidence, but it means that I remember the experience there even better. Caroline was a young girl at the time. The mission team uh, was led by a member of staff from Wycliffe, whom we all liked very much. I liked him particularly because I used to play golf with him, and he was almost as bad as me. His name was Michael Gear, and he was a lovely chap. His leadership was quiet and enabling. He gave us responsibility. In fact, he gave us responsibility that took us out of our comfort zone. But you sensed always that he was a safe pair of hands. You felt confident to take risks. I recall leading one person to Christ in a rundown council house while the pet raven, or was it a crow? I don't know what it was, flying around the kitchen like something out of a horror movie. And uh, these people surrendered their lives to Christ as this thing kept zooming past my head. It was very exciting. But it was an extremely effective team, and it was effective in part at least because it was well led by a servant leader. And now my less happy experience. Later that same summer, I was playing cricket for Oxford University against first Derbyshire at Burton-on-Trent and then the army team at Sandhurst. Now, for these two games, our captain was one of the finest players ever to play the game of cricket. His name was Imran Khan. At Burton-on-Trent, he insisted that our slow left-arm bowler, who wore thick glasses and was a studious sort of chap, should field extremely close to the batsman at short leg. And I shall never forget this poor man crouching by this great batsman from Derbyshire, making 180 runs, with the tears streaming down this poor chap's face, steaming up his glasses, as the ball kept whizzing past his head, missing him by about two inches. When we got to Sandhurst for the next game, I suggested rather boldly uh, to Imran that perhaps someone else might field short leg this time, not this poor chap. Well, the great Prince of Lahore, actually with whom I got on very well, announced to the team in a loud voice in the changing room, Digby, you are the man we need least in the team. You will field short leg. This is not the outcome that I was anticipating. <laughs> and so I did, but not for very long. The army team opened the batting with a frightfully posh-looking public schoolboy called Captain Fortescue Carruthers, or something like that. <laughs> this was the sort of chap that the great Pakistan fast bowler liked to feel should be breakfast on his toast in the morning. So Imran rushed in at this poor man, uh, bowling like a man possessed, while I was crouching at short leg. If you're a cricketer, that's about two yards away from the batsman. And I kept smiling at the poor captain to encourage him. He made the great mistake, because he was a very brave British Army officer, he made the great mistake of thinking that he, if he got closer to Imran, it would be easier to play him. The fact that Imran was bowling the ball at about 90 miles an hour, and a cricket ball is very hard, 
didn't seem to register with Captain Fortescue Carruthers, and the ball kept thudding into his body. And I would smile again and say, bad luck, old chap, you know. Maybe if you used the whole length of the pitch, you'd have more chance, and things like that. Anyway, I was smiling at him, trying to encourage him, because I knew that he was a lamb amongst wolves. Anyway, this incensed Imran even more, and he, the infuriated man, walked down the pitch, ran up to me and shouted, Digby, you are fraternizing with the enemy. Go and field on the boundary. And I was delighted to obey, to get out of the firing stone. Well, I share these two stories with you, simply this, that Michael Gere went on to serve faithfully and fruitfully uh, in the Church of England for many years, effective uh, leader and equipping all sorts of other people. Imran, the great Imran, he aspires to be president of Pakistan. <laughs> I suggest that Michael is a better example of collaborative leadership than dear Imran. <laughs> Happy Easter. <laughs>